0: to the podcast. Hi,
1: I'm Associate Professor Barbara Master from the School of Psychology at the University of Queensland.
0: What piqued your interest in high school that led you on the path to actually study psychology? Um,
1: I, oh, in high school, the well, psychology wasn't on the curriculum. Um, in fact, the reason I chose it at uni is because I couldn't spell it, um, so I thought it must be interesting, um, and obviously learned to spell it quite quickly, so that got over that issue. Um... And then I was fascinated so I studied sociology at school and lots of aspects of that really got my interest. I liked the way it dealt with social issues, you know kind of answering some of those big questions, but I got very frustrated with the methods. Um, so I kind of wanted to work out what the cause of some of these things that we were observing were. and sociology, to my understanding at that time <laughs> um, didn't provide me with the ability to kind of catch those answers and so, When I got to uni and in this subject, which I couldn't spell, I was fascinated by the fact that we used the experimental method uh, and the fact that that offered us a way to kind of determine cause and effect for certain things. And so, although it was um, at a, I guess, a reductionist level in comparison to some of the ways that sociology approaches issues, um, I was fascinated by the fact that there was this ability to actually do something and then observe its effects in in terms of social behaviour.
0: And you were talking before about how you studied economics at university and how you still like to actually kind of traipse into it a little bit with behavioural. Can you tell me a little bit about that interaction? Yeah, look, it's
1: relatively new. Um, So behavioural economics, I think, has become very fashionable over the last few years. Um, Certainly looking at Cass Sunstein's work on nudge and things like that, you know, there's been lots of what I term airport books written. That sounds awful. I don't mean to be so sort of dismissive of them, but they're the kind of books that you see at the airport and you're like, wow, that looks really interesting. I've got a few hours on a plane. I might actually buy that and read it. And so lots of people have come on to this idea of nudge. And then I guess when I picked up some of these books at an airport, um, I read them and I went, that's psychology. (laughs) That's not not economics, that's psychology. And so sort of tried to explore the interface between the two. Um, And I guess, you know... I've been influenced by some of the ability of uh, economists to really do those very large scale analyses that we don't have the ability to do so well in psychology, and can see real kind of power in the ability to kind of combine the two methods, and so um, there's a whole bunch of new collaborations uh, that I have that are kicking off um, with people in the Centre for Health uh, Research here at, at UQ. Um, and also working with Professor Raymond Ferguson out of Nottingham University in the UK.
0: Going back to you being a student, what made you as a university student want to go on to research?
1: I guess a few experiences I had when I was doing my undergraduate degree. So I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Kent in England, in Canterbury. It was a relatively small psychology department at that point. I think there were 45 of us in my year. Um, And I was fortunate, although I didn't know it at the time, of course, I was fortunate to be taught by very big names in the area, Um, and so my honours supervisor was Professor Rupert Brown, who's at Sussex University now, uh, and my PhD supervisor was Professor Dominic Abrams, who's uh, very well known for his work on social identity theory. So I had these immensely famous people, very well-read people, very well-respected people, uh, teaching me, and I was sort of like, well, yeah, some, there might be something in this, and because it was such a small group of individuals, um, we sort of just hung around uh, in this one building where all the psychologists were, and so you got to see what people were doing, and kind of the experiments they were running, um, and I was a poor student, and so I was always looking for work, and then one day, one of them, a group of Brown sort of walked through and sort of said, oh, did you want some RA work, to which the obvious answer is, well, yes, and so through that RA work, I got to work on um, some studies which were then subsequently published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. So I started to see the translation from what we did in the labs at the university came through to these papers, which then became very impactful. And I was like, well, there's something in there. that. That's kind of interesting to me. How, how do you get onto that? And so I carried on working as an RA uh, during my undergraduate degree and then when I finished I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do um, because my first degree is actually industrial relations and social psychology uh, and um, at that time I when I went into that degree I wanted to be a trade union activist, that was my kind of want and by the time I finished my degree Margaret Thatcher had dismantled all the trade unions in the UK and so there were no jobs for that, so I was kind of like oh, what do I do now um, and so I really didn't know what I wanted to do and so I rang up uh, Rupert one day, he was my honours advisor, and said, well, what do I do? Uh, he said, well, I don't know what you want to do, but while you think about it, would you like a job as a research associate for a year? And I said yes, <laughs> because it was more money than I'd ever imagined having. Not that it was a huge amount of money, I hasten to add, but from going from nothing to something was, was a massive leap. And so, again, I had another year working on a range of... of um, a range of projects at which the end of it i was like well a i need more training <laughs> and b i think i want to be a researcher so i went on to do a master's uh and then also a phd that followed from that
0: what was your phd actually on <laughs> it was on the
1: um, ambivalent sexism inventory in 1994 oh, showing my age, oh, 1994 1995 <laughs> Um, There we were fortunate, because of the people we had in our department, to sort of sometimes get access to papers that weren't yet published, Uh, and this is before online versions, these were papers actually hard mailed across from the US to, yeah, (laughs) we're going back a long time. Um, And we read a paper in Reading Group and, and I was fascinated by this idea, so this was um, a early version of a paper that was subsequently published in 1996 in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology which talked about these two forms of sexism. Um, and I guess part of that was I'd had a long-standing interest in prejudice and discrimination and one aspect of that, the hostile sexism scale, the ambivalent sexism inventory tree, was just like every other prejudice, you know, it's nasty and negative basically. But then they posed this idea that in sexism there was a different type as well, um, which was benevolent sexism, and it was a subjectively positive or warm in feeling tone, I guess, uh, prejudices expressed towards women. That obviously, because of its positivity, it was likely that women would actually respond very um, well to it. Um, But actually, was I guess quite damning in that it only ever rewarded or. was reacted positively to if women stayed in stereotypical roles. So as long as they behaved, if you like, and as long as they adhered to the good traditional stereotype, then they got this reward of benevolent sexism. And it's positively associated with hostile sexism, so the two go hand in hand. And I'm like, well, wow, this is amazing. You know, I hadn't heard this kind of conceptualisation of prejudice before. So Gordon Orport in his 1954 book talks about a love prejudice but it was very different to, to the version we were seeing here and I'm like well what could you do with this? And so in my PhD I spent many, many studies trying to explore what you could do with hostile and benevolent sexism in terms of behavioural outcomes for women.
0: I can see how that impacts your fields now in what you research considering that you do quite a lot on stereotypes. Yep. So before we go into your research currently? What are your general research fields?
1: Um, So if I have to characterise myself, I talk about myself as an applied social psychologist and then I guess as a secondary somewhat jokey aspect about I deal with the good and bad of society. Um, And so my two current research interests, one which derives I think quite um, logically from what I did for my PhD, uh, focuses on perceptions of sexual assault victims in the criminal justice system that has a dominant focus on female victims, um, reflecting, I guess, just the number of relative proportions of males and and females who are subjected to sexual abuse. So in that work, we look at how stereotypes impact decision-making in the courts and also before uh, cases get to the courts, and really with a view to looking at how we can come up with interventions to prevent stereotypes having such a massive influence, because of course, these outcomes should just be based on the evidence. Um, But there are understandable biases that people have that make that somewhat, sometimes not occur as easily as it is perhaps we think it should. So we spend a lot of work, a lot of time thinking about those particular issues. Um, I guess that's the bad of society. Um, On the good of society, I spend a lot of time thinking about the issue of blood donors and really how to improve the recruitment and retention of them because, obviously, without them, we are stuffed.
0: Absolutely, I can definitely agree with that. Just because the people listening might not be familiar with psychology, mm-hmm. um, can you just go into a little bit on what an applied social psychologist actually <laughs> sure. is?
1: Um, so I guess um, in psychology we talk about basic uh, psychology or basic science and applied science. So basic science is really um, research which um, attempts to improve our theories of human behaviour Um, sometimes with very little eye to application. Um, An applied social psychologist is someone who takes those theories uh, and uses them to affect social change.
0: Okay great thank you. The fact that you are a psychologist um, and you look at kind of these specific fields, the good and the bad as you (laughs) label them, what do you think this says about you as a person?
1: (laughs) Um, I like to call it attention deficit Um, I find so many aspects of human behaviour fascinating and so many different quirks fascinating that I really um, have never been someone who can just go to a single behaviour or a single area and doggedly pursue it probably to the detriment of my career Um, what I do believe in quite strongly though is that psychology should be applied. That we should take what we know and we should attempt to disseminate it as widely as possible so it actually results in some change in society.
0: Just before we do get started on your uh, specific research, what advice would you give to a uni student who's starting out?
1: In psychology or more generally? Either. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess more generally I would say do what you're interested in not what you think you should do which is again probably not very <laughs> um, consistent advice but um, I think it's really difficult to pursue an area of study that you're not passionate about that you don't actually just pick up articles or books about for the sheer hell of it not because you're told to not because it'll get you grades but because you think well wow, that's interesting I wonder I wonder what that is or you know should I read this article I'll read this book um and that's very difficult, I think, in the in the current area we find ourselves in. So I think that used to be far more supportive when there was uh, generous arts degrees or whatever, where you could actually sort of have a look around at what was going on and, and pick what you're interested in. Um, so that would be one advice. A bit of advice, probably not very wise.
0: <laughs> and what about for someone who's looking into psychology? Um, I think in psychology, I think you should be open to...
1: Uh, having a go at everything, I think people often go I'm going to be a social psychologist, I'm going to be an organizational psychologist and they ignore what other elements of psychology can tell them but also what other disciplines can tell them, so lots of what we do in social psychology is heavily influenced by sociology <laughs> which is good, um, and by anthropology and all those other and other disciplines, also economics, and so I think if you have the option Uh, To take courses in those other disciplines, it's only ever going to improve you. The other bit of advice I would say is that um, increasingly in psychology there's an awareness of the need for transparency in our methods, and so understanding what the open science framework is all about, understanding about the need for a priori predictions, and publishing those and registering those is incredibly important. So that would be my next piece of advice. I'm full of good (laughs) advice.
0: all right well then leading on to the advice what book would you recommend
1: has no relation to psychology (laughs) whatsoever Um, I um, I loved English literature as a high school student I wasn't very good at it but I loved it Um, and you know bearing in mind what I just said about doing what you love as opposed to what you should do I I sort of pursued that for a bit and so lots of the books I recommend have no relation to psychology um, and I guess I think that everybody should read something by E.M. Forster at some point in their life, and I guess my pick would be Howard's End.
0: What particularly about that book would you recommend?
1: It was the dealings with human relationships in it. I didn't like his attitude towards women, I'll tell you that now for nothing. Um, I don't think that's really very good, but again, it doesn't, you know, that speaks to the fact that you shouldn't limit yourself to things which you just agree with, you should read broadly. Um, but it was the fact, yeah, it was dealing with the intricacies of human of human relationships in a way that I guess I hadn't seen previously or, or had resonated with. I read a lot of Bronte sisters and all the rest of it, and it just bored me to tears. Um, so it was just a different perspective.
0: Okay, so moving on to your specific research now. So you were talking before about the good. So we'll start with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so blood donor recruitment and retention. Would you like to give just a little bit of an explanation first off?
1: Sure. Um, okay. So. I can cite some well-known statistics in this area, which is I guess that one in three of us will need a blood transfusion at some point in our lives, and I guess one in 30 donate. Now you can argue with those statistics, and we can talk about age eligible population and all the rest of it, but the fact is um, we do need a lot of blood donations. Uh, And that demand, particularly for specific blood products, is going to increase as we have an aging population. Uh, and also, as we tackle issues to do with um, obesity uh, uh, as well, so we've got a you know sort of upward demand, I guess, of blood products, and yet very few of us donate blood, um, and that's for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, and yet, if you ask people, do you think donating blood's a good idea? I think it's like ninety-six, ninety-seven percent people go, yeah, it's a really good idea. So you've got this real disconnect between what they think is good or what they say is good, <laughs> and actual behavior, which from my perspective as a social psychologist, it's just like, it makes no sense, like, you know, one of the strongest predictors of intention at least is, is our attitude, people have a positive attitude, and what's going on, what's preventing people actually engaging in that behavior, and keep engaging in
0: that behavior. So you talk a lot about anxiety mm. and one of the solutions being enhanced preparation materials? Yeah,
1: you know, if you, <laughs> if you talk to people, so next to that I think it's a really good idea, people go, oh, I don't like needles. And you get, there's a very, very common response. And so you're like, well, what do you mean you don't like needles? You know, and I'm fascinated by this idea that people can kind of dismiss this really positive attitude towards something with kind of like, yeah, yeah, someone should do it but it's not me because I just don't like needles. And needles are a tiny, tiny part of the entire process. So it's like, well, what can you do about that? So we kind of interested in this notion of anxiety and, and um, around needles, but also more generally around the blood donation process. And so there's lots of interesting reasons why people might be anxious. Um, I guess from an evolutionary perspective, loss of blood doesn't, look very good for you as an individual typically it's associated with the fact you're dying so you can see that there might be some real kind of basic stuff going on here Um, and I know when I've donated blood in the past in the UK I really don't like the blood bag I just don't like the sight of it, I don't like to see it in other people I certainly don't want to see my own blood so I have no problem with needles but I just can't cope with that blood in the bag it just freaks me out so lots of things going on there Um, So obviously that's a big deterrent to people, so our work in conjunction with Chris France of Ohio University was really about um, can we work with donors to try and address some of those issues and give them confidence in their ability to cope with the process. So we've worked uh, a fair bit on preparation materials, and this is really about building um, people's confidence of what we term self-efficacy, so that notion of, do you know what, I might not like that. But here's a way I can get over that. Um, the other thing that we have to acknowledge, which I guess is a real elephant in the room, is that sometimes when you donate blood, you don't feel so good, okay? Things, you know, you're, you're actually losing some blood, that can impact blood pressure, um, and that can actually result in some sort of vasovagal reaction. At the mild end, that's kind of a bit of dizziness, um, and a bit of sort of um, just being a bit lightheaded. At the other end, it's a bit more serious, but that's the, the other end of the very serious, incredibly rare but, but, rare, but lots of people talk about feeling a bit weird. And so it's like, well, you know, if you're in this strange situation, imagine you're a first time donor, you've got no schema for how this is gonna play out. So what can you do? Like if you start to feel weird, then you might go, oh God, this is awful, You know, this is making me really sick, I'm not gonna do this again, and you kind of build that up. So our idea was if we gave people some preparation materials, We talked a about the good that they were doing in society and bolstered the positivity they had towards that Um, but we also talked about ways of um, distracting themselves while they're donating so that those anxiety uh, aspects can be mitigated we also gave them some strategies for when they're actually donating so that if they did start to feel a bit weird they can easily overcome it and these are well known these are well validated there's no sort of controversy about them Um, and so you kind of give people if you like this or this toolkit to take in with them and the very fact they're less anxious when they start donating means they're less likely to actually have a vasovagal reaction So that's kind of what we've done in trying to sort of get people through the door and have a good experience obviously.
0: Excellent um, Yeah, well hopefully it's starting to work because we <laughs> definitely need it uh, So moving on to the bad now Unfortunately. Um, So you've looked at rape victim stereotypes and particularly um, the impact at trial.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I I guess at trial is a bit difficult because obviously we can't um, do anything with real jurors in Australia. Um, But we've looked at, I guess, mock jurors um, and we've also done uh, a lot of work with the police now trying to sort of look at the decision making process. So I guess in every country, um, if you look at victimisation surveys, you'll see that there's a much higher um, proportion of people who report being sexually assaulted than the official statistics talk to. And so there's a real issue there. It's like why are people not coming forward? Um, sexual assault is probably the crime that's, that's headlined for having the worst attrition rates. Although there are other crimes like male-on-male assault that also have uh, massive sort of discrepancies. I guess. Um, and so we're interested in this notion of well what is it that stops people coming forward Um, and one of the things that plays into this is the fact that you know the very process of reporting uh, and going through that process is often or has been referred to as the second rape. it's hugely traumatic Um, and if people put themselves, and predominantly women put themselves through this you have the real issue that when they get to trial the person may not be felt, felt Found guilty of of the crime. Um, And that's maybe as a function of it not occurring, um, but it may be a function of of some, I guess, biases in information processing which lead to those sorts of decisions. And so there's lots of work done in this area on rape myths, um, which are myths that exist about the victim, about the perpetrator, about what real rape looks like. So, real rape, the stereotype is you know, um, a man jumping out from behind the bushes and sexually assaulting a woman he doesn't know. So a stranger assault, whereas of course, in fact, that's the least likely type of, of, of sexual assault to occur. Most sexual assault takes place between people who are known to each other. Um, and once you get into that area, the question that gets raised, and I guess the question that we grapple with now is that people are trying to make the decision as to, well, was that, is that consensual? Or is that actually sexual assault? And it's very, very difficult because what we've discovered is there's actually no behaviour that's the define sexual assault that hasn't been argued, at least in the court of law, to be consensual. And some of those transcripts are horrendous when you read what they're trying to build into a consensual sex schema. So um, one of the things that we've been trying to do is some intervention work to try and get people to think, I guess, more broadly about what constitutes sexual assault. Uh, so people are very uh, willing to take on board what you might think are quite odd behaviours into being consensual sex uh, script. Um, they're less willing to kind of generalise or, or um, expand the stereotype or prototype of what rape looks like. And so we've done some work in that area trying to um, look at interventions to try and broaden that that kind of uh, that kind of prototype.
0: And. How often have you found this behaviour to actually be prevalent in trials and kind of in society as general?
1: What, what behaviour specifically?
0: Um, seeing people and women as just stereotypes.
1: <sighs> well, we, we haven't looked at that specifically in our research, but I think weekly I see examples in the media where you see applications of, of that stereotype, and they go from being the um, completely hit yourself on the forehead in the duh kind of moment where you have, I think it was an Italian judge, I could be wrong here, who argued that a woman couldn't have been raped because she was wearing tight jeans, um, through to some more of the ridiculous things. And some of these campaigns come from very well-meaning bodies, so this notion of, of asking young girls or girls not to drink too much because it makes them vulnerable, and it's like, well, it's not their behavior. That's <laughs> the issue here. It's actually the behavior of the perpetrators. So, I think you see it way too much, way too much in society still.
0: And you've also looked at the counter-stereotype victim Mm. behaviour and how that impacts the trial as well. Mm.
1: So there's a stereotype of how a rape victim should behave. Um, So that goes um, during the context of her assault. Um, So she should fight back. She should obviously say no. Uh, She should verbally uh, uh, resist repeatedly she should physically fight back even though that behaviour might in fact put her in more danger. When she, she should report the sexual assault immediately, um, again, which may not play out in reality, in fact none of these may play out in reality for very good reasons. She should be highly emotional and all these sorts of things. And what we see is that when a rape victim doesn't behave like that, okay, so she's sexually assaulted by someone she knows. in a context whereby consensual sex might take place. So for example, in someone's house, if she, um, for various reasons, doesn't physically fight back, perhaps because she fears for her life, she doesn't report immediately because she's so traumatized that she can't actually bring herself to go, or, and she has what we term, I guess, a numbing response to, to actually being assaulted. So she's not highly emotional, she's just quite flat in affect, any of those aspects. And some uh, have an impact on whether someone goes, yeah, you know what, that looks more like consensual sex and therefore it wasn't rape than if it looks like rape. And so we've explored the parameters around those, trying to find out, I guess, the key ones that lead to decisions of, of consensual sex versus rape. Um, and that's some work we've done, which we haven't yet published. Um, but also then looking at, at kind of you know, whether in fact you know, those perceptions go beyond um, just the rape incident. So there's some very interesting work published by the Australian Institute of Criminology that actually looks at behaviour post-assault that some perpetrators engage in to try and reframe the behaviour that occurred at the assault at the assault as consensual sex. So the impact of, for example, the perpetrator contacting the victim afterwards to ask them out on a date or go out for dinner and stuff like that. So those sorts of elements we found Where you have a victim who does not adhere to the stereotype, okay, they're more likely to be blamed for their assault, it's more likely to be seen as consensual sex.
0: And you've also looked at the stereotypes of defendants, which you just started to talk about, Mm -hmm. the kind of actions that defendants are seen that are normal behaviour for Mm -hmm. a sexual assaulter, um, like a a perpetrator, Yeah. Um, Yeah. can you talk a little bit about that?
1: We've done much less, to our shame actually, we've done much less work in this area, Um, and that's kind of, um, (laughs) it's one of those things when you go, why aren't we looking at the prohibition, I don't know, and I think, you know, we've come from a a history of people who have looked at victims, and I think we carried on that before going, hold on, it's really nothing to do with the victim, it's to do with the people who are actually engaging in this behaviour. So we've done much less research in this area. And again, most of it is is not published at the moment. Um, What we see, I think, is that we would really like everybody who commits sexual assault in in society to have a big label on their head that says, I engage in sexual assault, because it would make them a lot easier uh, to determine. And so we have stereotypes about the people who engage in sexual assault. um, And those stereotypes are very protective, so we think that they um, will be uh, Maybe slightly socially withdrawn, slightly socially awkward, and so on and so forth. And, and obviously, will be in some way um, atypical. So, lots of what we know about perpetrators of sexual assault is actually based on research that's been done with prison populations. And I think it was growth and someone, I can't remember the second author, Hobson Hobson, um, who came up with this categorisation of, of different types of rapists based on that. And for many years, that's been kind of what we've worked off of you know the, these people are at, uh, atypical in these specific ways when you look at some of the research that's being done by institutions like the Australian Institute of Criminology who do amazing work you can see that when they talk to people who've actually been sexually assaulted our stereotypes and prototypes I guess of people who engage in that behavior are completely off um, so often these people are very socially skilled uh, they're very charming Uh, and that's how they actually perpetrate their behavior because you don't expect to be sexually assaulted by somebody who's so nice.
0: All right, let's finally flip back to the good just to end on. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Just, yeah, to finish up, talking about blood donor retention
1: as well. So blood donor retention is really tricky um, and surprisingly harder than you may think it should be. Um, We know that around 40% of people who donate blood once don't come back in the next two years um, not all of them have a bad time <laughs> but this isn't a case that we have a massive number of reactions people can have really really uh, positive initial blood donation experiences and we know that from the studies that we've conducted and yet they simply don't come back so that's a real problem for us because that's the massive point of loss of, of donors um, with those people you've actually done the hard work, you've got them through the door the first time so the question is why don't they come back Um, A lot of our research in this area has focused on, um, you know, the the issues that can arise. Um, And we know some work done by Sanguin in the Netherlands, um, particularly Anne Van Dongen and colleagues, um, has looked at this notion of active versus passive lapses. So there are two groups. There are those people who have gone, nah, not doing that ever again, didn't like it, didn't have a good time, whatever, you know, I didn't feel well. I didn't feel well while I was donating. Two weeks later, I didn't feel well, and I blamed the donation. Uh, I like to exercise a lot. It impacted on my you know, running ability. on? Well, they've they they've actually thought about this, and they've made a decision. But most other people are just what we term passive lapses. So these are people who you'll say, are you a blood donor? And they go, yeah, yeah, I'm a blood donor. And you'll say, well, when did you last donate? And they're like, I don't know, five years ago. So. You know. so they still very much carry the identity of a, of a blood donor, which is we think are quite an important thing but they just haven't enacted on their behavior and this isn't a case of sort of this isn't kind of a deliberate strategy they simply just haven't got around to it so when the opportunity arises other things are going on that are more important uh, or they don't have time to donate Um, and so with that group they're a bit easier because it's really a a sense of trying to reiterate the need for blood donation uh, but also sort of um, I guess, minimizing the cost to them as an individual actually engaged in the behavior. So making it more convenient or making the perception that's more convenient. Okay. There's no such thing as reality. It's all perception.
0: Let's finish up there. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Sure. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.